Welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast with John Hulsman, uh, where we try to make sense of the fascinating new era we find ourselves in. And this is going to be a series we're going to do. One of the strengths of realism is to look at the world through other people's eyes. And so if we can do this through the great powers of the world, the people who lead them, as to how they wake up and look out at the world every morning. We can understand how they move their chess piece, and if we can move all the great power chess pieces, at the end of the day, we'll have an understanding of how the world works. And I thought we'd start this with my favorite Bond villain, Vladimir Putin, um, who manages to be a, a Bond villain with a certain amount of panache. Um, Putin is a guy who's played bad cards really well, and although he's far more nefarious than Charles de Gaulle, he reminds me of de Gaulle in that way, that just as France was desperate to retain its great power status after the humiliation of World War II, and de Gaulle played very bad cards well, so Putin has taken over the ruins of a superpower after the drunken Yeltsin era where the oligarchs ran everything and has come in and tried to make, to quote Donald Trump, Russia great again. And it's been largely successful despite all the structural forces against him. What are these forces? As Putin looks out from the Kremlin this morning, what does he see? He sees a Russia in terminal economic decline. Uh, this is a country that has a GDP the size of the state of Texas, uh, which is not going to make you one of the great powers in the world. The superpower days are long behind him for that reason and that reason alone. Russia is a one-crop economy. That doesn't help either. The power of Russia economically is dependent on the spot price of oil or natural gas on any given day. That's all it is. It has tried to diversify, as former President Medvedev, Putin's stooge, put it, but has failed. And so, again, I can tell you how powerful Russia is on any given day by the spot price of energy. And that is a very dangerous way to proceed. Although energy prices are going up at the moment, meaning the Kremlin is waxing, they've been down as low as $40 a barrel. They're heading toward $100 now. But if you're dependent on one crop, you are dependent on the vicissitudes of a world you simply don't control. And so that's a problem. Demographically, Russia is a disaster. Everyone has stories about drunken Russian men and that the, the male rate of death is so low, lowering the age, that demographically Russia isn't keeping up with the rest of the world. And this is something you can't just turn around in the blink of an eye. Uh, there's rampant corruption in Russia. Putin has merely dominated corruption rather than doing away with it. And although to know Putin, what you need to know is that at his desk in the Kremlin, there is that gigantic picture we all saw growing up of Peter the, the Great on horseback. And that's the image Putin has of himself. Peter the Great also came in after a failed Russian czar and shaved the boyar's beards, the oligarchs of his day. He shaved their beards saying, I am dominant. Putin has done that to great effect. And the oligarchs are dependent on him or run out of the country or jailed. But he's merely become the top dog in what is an endless display of Russian corruption. Corruption isn't a feature of the Russian system economically. It is the Russian system. So... On one hand, you have a decaying gas station, corrupt, uh, with not very good gas uh, and nuclear weapons. Uh, but on the other hand, despite all these facts against him, Putin has played his cards very, very well. He accepts that Russia, for all the reasons I've outlined, which are endemic and structural, will never be a superpower within our lifetime. But that doesn't mean Russia can't be a great power. And remember, in the new era we live in beneath the two superpowers, China 
and the United States, there are a series of great powers that have an awful lot of room to maneuver. The EU, Japan, India, the Anglosphere, and Russia. It isn't like the Cold War when if, a, if an ally got out of line, like the East Germans in 1953, the Hungarians in 56, the Czechs in 68, or the Poles in 1980, you just go and invade and stamp them down. Or in the case of America, read any good Grand Green novel, you would stamp down some correct, corrupt, feckless ally like the Duvaliers in Haiti, the voodoo-driven administration of Papa Doc and Baby Doc, any number of Latin American thugocracies, uh, people like Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, really unsavory types that were there to keep order in an American kind of pro-American tilt. These days are over. Things are not in lockstep. It's not a bipolar world in the same way that it used to be. Although they're two superpowers, this series of five or six great powers underneath have an awful lot of room to run with the football. And indeed, Putin has made the most of this and has run with the football. Though he tilts toward China at the highest level, he's careful not to totally go into the Chinese camp for two basic reasons. One, the Russians have competing interests with China. They are vying in a new great game in Central Asia. Kipling would understand this. I'm currently reading the novel Kim to get a flavor for this. But there is a great game going on for geostrategic influence in Central Asia, with the United States as a bit player after the humiliation in Afghanistan, but with Russia and China really competing to dominate the region. So their interests don't line up that well. Secondly, they can't be much used to each other geostrategically, and that they're facing opposite directions and have very little in common that anyone attacking the Russians won't be attacking the Chinese, that they just have simply different problems. Russia is a land-based power largely, China increasingly a maritime power, and that doesn't line up very well. And then lastly, what I call the Batman and Robin problem, that Russia, great Russian nationalism, think of that picture of Peter the Great behind Putin's desk in the Kremlin. Great Russian nationalism doesn't mean being second banana to anybody. And that's the only way this would work. China's the superpower, meaning that Russia would have to be Robin to China's Batman. This is how the Sino-Chinese uh, alliance broke down, in the, the Sino-Russian alliance broke down in the first place. When Stalin died, Mao said, I don't want to be Robin to Khrushchev. It was all right with Stalin. But now that he's out of the way as the iconic leader of communism, I don't feel I'm second banana to Khrushchev and the Soviets and began to drift toward the United States. Because of this, because of this humiliation and being Robin to the Batman of China, Putin's not going to do the same. He's not going to totally throw himself in with the Chinese to be their second banana. The great Russian nationalism, which has politically sustained him, and for all his thugocracy and for all that he skews elections, Putin is genuinely popular. The independent Levada Center puts his approval rating at around 60%, which is a number most Western leaders would kill for. Well, Putin looks at this and is not going to throw in the great Russian nationalist card, which has sustained him all these many years, uh, to be second banana Robin to China's Batman. So for all these reasons, yes, he'll tilt toward China, but he's not going to be in the pocket of the Chinese and go the whole hog for a full-scale alliance. What he is going to do is be a wrecking power. He'll tilt toward China. He doesn't like the U.S.-dominated world. He doesn't like being under the thumb of the Americans. He smarts at the humiliation of loss to the Americans in the Cold War and will do anything he can to maintain great power status. And Putin looks at this as any good 
realist would, whereas John Kerry was mocking Putin for wanting a sphere of influence, saying the 19th century want their foreign policy back. I'll mock John Kerry and say, this is a guy who's been wrong about literally everything. If he told me to go left, I'd go right. If he told me to go up, I'd go down. Realism is forever. Spheres of influence are forever. What do you think the Western Hemisphere is for the United States? It's a sphere of influence. We have more dominance locally, geographically, than we do further away. This has been true since time began and isn't something to be smart, snarky about. Rather, John Kerry ought to crack a history book now and again. Um, and in turn, Putin looks at this as any good realist would. He's not an ethical realist as I am, but he's a Machiavellian realist, and at least we can understand where he's coming from. To sustain Russian great power status, Russia cannot give up any more territory. Strategic depth has always been the key to understanding Russia, a country that's easily invaded and has since Napoleon, through Hitler, traded land for time. If they have strategic depth, a series of allies or provinces outlying Moscow, they can fall back and have this strategic comfort blanket, which is in essence what they had under Stalin. Then comes the end of the Cold War, where Eastern and Central Europe entirely flee to what Russia sees as its enemy. The United States, under President George Herbert Walker Bush, played somewhat dirtily with the Russians and said after the unification of Germany verbally, look, we're not going to look to expand the NATO alliance. And indeed, they then did. With Russia on its knees, everyone said, it doesn't matter. Let's expand the alliance up into Russia's frontier. Getting rid of the strategic depth. Well, Putin looks at this as a humiliation, and now that Russia's off its needs, what does he say he needs to do? Not unreasonably from realist point of view, he says, we need strategic depth. That means the old Soviet socialist republics of Belarus and Ukraine and the Caucasus need to have a pro-Russian tilt. That will be the strategic depth that they have. They know they can't get back NATO. They'll mess with the Eastern Europeans. They'll try to have economic power there and in the Balkans. They'll try to torment the Poles. But in the end, those countries are now in NATO. What he wants to do is to see that one, NATO expansion has come to an end, and two, he retains his dominance in these former Soviet republics for strategic depth and to prove that this is Russia's sphere of influence. That with this sphere of influence, Russia is still a great power. During Putin's last, he does a once-a-year monumental three-hour press conference, which is a performance art, really. It's amazing to watch. If, uh, if ever you have the time for fun, just watch Putin field questions. He's much better at it than, say, our current president, who doesn't seem to know where he is half the time um, and doesn't have press conferences or as little as he can so as not to be found out. Putin, despite being autocratic, has a conference where he literally fields every question until the press are exhausted. And one of the things he said in one of the last press conferences in a rambling way is the Russian bear doesn't try to dominate the world, but in the taiga, the tundra land, he is dominant and will retain his dominance. And that's Putin metaphorically saying just what I did about realism. Russia will be a great power and it will have a sphere of influence next door around Ukraine, Belarus, and the Caucasus states and will meddle at the edges in the former Baltic states and try to economically penetrate Central and Eastern Europe to have a say there and in the Balkans. And that will be that. He is disciplined and focused on Russia controlling that territory, having a role to play in the Middle East, having a role to play in Central Asia, all these places next door to Russia. And that's it. Yes, the Russians dabble in Venezuela 
They dabble in Cuba. But by and large, he runs a remarkably disciplined foreign policy based on spheres of influence, based on geography of what's next door to him. And this is a good realist stuff. And that discipline is something Putin has, unlike the European Union, who wants to be involved everywhere and thus has a major role almost nowhere. The strategic discipline is the key to Putin's success. The second key is that Putin isn't afraid to have people die. He will use his army, take casualties as a weapon of policy without a lot of sentiment. Whereas if there were any casualties in Europe, there would be utter hysteria. The lotus eaters simply wouldn't put up with it. So he allows, he has an extra tool in the basket as he showed when he annexed Crimea. Everyone said the days of annexing European countries are over until Putin annexed part of a European country. Crimea had been part of Ukraine. It has vital bases in Sevastopol and elsewhere for the Black Sea fleet. And so he went in and just took it and no one did anything, predictably crickets from the Europeans because they don't have a common army or a common position toward Russia. He has a common foreign policy, a unitary foreign policy, based on this very rational, if ruthless form of realism, and he goes in and decisively does things, unlike everyone else. And this is another huge advantage that Putin has. Keeping this sphere of influence and Russian great power status is everything to Putin. Now we look at Ukraine, where the rubber hits the road. Belarus, because of the protests, became an opportunity. Again, Putin took a crisis with Lukashenko, the local tin pot dictator, and made it into an opportunity. Um, Putin is no friend of President Lukashenko, who he thinks is a loose cannon and has maintained too much distance from Russia. But Lukashenko, when imperiled, turned to the Russians to bolster his regime. And Putin saw this crisis as an opportunity and moved Ukraine closer to being a colony of the Russians rather than an independent ally. And this, of course, is very good from Putin's point of view. Secondly, Ukraine, desperate for NATO membership, still corrupt, still wanting NATO membership, still looking back to the halcyon days where it says it was promised NATO membership. Now, of course, everyone is embarrassed about that. Thank heaven the Europeans stopped the Americans from annexing it in their moment of tri into NATO in their moment of triumphalism after the end of the Cold War, because this is territory it would be very hard for the NATO alliance to secure. The problem with moving NATO so far to the east is that you move NATO into territory that is indeed a Russian sphere of influence that is almost impossible to defend. So for Putin, the best alternative is that Ukraine is a pro-Russian pro satellite. Well, that hasn't happened. And now with President Zelensky, you have a Ukraine that is pro-Western in orientation and would desperately love to join NATO. Putin wants to stop this at all costs. And so the second best option is for Ukraine to be a basket case. And this explains the invasion eight years ago where Putin joined up with Ukrainian pro-Russian separatists in the east of the country, sent troops over the border in a war that has killed more than 14,000 people and displaced fully a million. The war is escalating at the moment. There are 100,000 Russian troops around eastern Ukraine. This is not enough for a full invasion, as every military expert, including me, will tell you. Uh, the Ukrainians have about 250,000 troops and are increasingly well armed by the Americans. But Putin is stirring things and probing at the border as the U.S. is distracted by looking into the Indo-Pacific and the Europeans are distracted by their usual naval gazing.
And while this goes on, Putin probes for Western weaknesses as a wrecking power because the first best choice in Ukraine is a satellite. He doesn't have that. The second best choice is to make it an economic basket case because of endemic Ukrainian corruption on its own. This is already happening. They haven't solved this problem economically despite all their resources. They remain a basket case. And then third, to make it a strategic basket case because if Ukraine isn't working, Putin can point to it as a demonstration effect to his other allies and say, in Central Asia, the Caucasus, Belarus, and the Balkans, and say, you see, if you head toward the West, you end up a disaster, and you don't want that. So not working in Ukraine is fine for Putin as a wrecking power. That keeps the strategic balance from his eyes working just fine. The third best option would be if the United States and, and, the, and the EU um, we're stupid enough, the European countries, to allow Ukraine into NATO, which would be a catastrophic mistake. Watch Putin invade then, and then nothing would happen because we couldn't defend this country, and then NATO would be destroyed because NATO is based upon credibility. The Article 5 commitments that one, all for one and one for all, as the three musketeers would put it, that Article 5 commitment in NATO means the U.S. must come to the aid of every country in NATO, and that has worked as a blank check because the United States has until recently, until the end of the Cold War, only included countries in NATO that it could defend. Ukraine is indefensible, indefensible, and the U.S. has no major interest there, unlike the Russians. It would be as if somebody were to invade Mexico, if China were to invade Mexico. How would the United States react? Very badly. How would Putin react? Very badly. But he'd see a choice in this expansion he'd see a choice to destroy NATO entirely. Because if Article 5 didn't work for Ukraine, then the commitment itself would be called into question for everyone. So Putin is waiting in his wrecking power away for the U.S. to make a mistake and extend in a what would be insanity NATO membership to Ukraine. So this is the order of priorities through which Putin views the world. He knows he cannot run it, he knows he cannot dominate it anymore as a superpower, but somehow, despite a sclerotic economy, a one-crop economy, endemic corruption, horrible demography, he has revamped the Russian military successfully since the war with Georgia when it performed very badly. It performed much better in Crimea. He's made it a great power yet again. Uh, he has, in a coherent way, in a decisive way, in a unitary way, in a disciplined way, set up a sphere of influence with Belarus, Ukraine, the Caucasus states, then further afield, interests in Central Asia and the Balkans. And he's kept to that with some involvement in the Middle East. He's kept to that. The neighborhood is what matters. The sphere of influence is what matters. Continuing to make Russia a great power is what matters and is the key to Putin's success, that Russia is still at the great power table, despite all these problems. Yes, like de Gaulle, there are limits to what he can do, and he's merely playing bad cards well, but boy, does he play bad cards well. And the world through Putin's eyes is, is a wrecking power, waiting for the United States to make a mistake, wary of ending up in China's pocket, but knowing that if he's more wily and smarter and decisive than the other powers that have more power, the two superpowers. He can maintain Russia despite all the limitations of having an economy only the size of Texas. He can maintain Russian power and maintain its great power status for the rest of what amounts to him being the czar for the rest of his life. And that, as they say, is the world through Putin's eyes.
Really enjoyed this one with the Around the World in 20 Minutes. And for those of you who haven't subscribed up to now, please do so. Uh, so many of you have, and we're in overwhelmed by the response to what we're doing. And we'll continue along these lines because we love working with Substack, which is me talking directly to you without the filter of various editors getting in the way and giving you the unvarnished, entertaining truth about how the world works. I so enjoyed this one. I think we'll continue through the world through other people's eyes as we go. Um, and do the other great powers as we go, because this has been great fun. Also, again, for those of you who have subscribed, please do give the $70 a year, $7 a month that we're asking. Um, Substack works on the honor system. This is the price of the coffee I've already had today, I admit. Um, if you think we're worth a Starbucks a month, if we add enough value to your life in doing this, that we're worth a Starbucks a month, and it's frankly less than that, please do give because we want to devote more and more of our time to working directly with you, with our community, rather than through other people. It's a lot more fun. So please do give the Starbucks amount and on we go. Thanks so much.